to the Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast, where we explore biblical hermeneutics so we can discover how to live biblically for God's glory. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast. If you haven't subscribed or followed already, I'd ask that you please do so, that you can, so that you can be aware when new content is being published. But in today's episode, we want to deal with a couple things. First, we're going to start out with working through the goal of biblical hermeneutics, and maybe even more broadly than that, what's the goal of biblical interpretation uh, in general? Uh, but we also are then going to go into uh, the concept of authorial intent or reader response, and that's the idea of who gets to determine the meaning of the text. It's tied very closely with the goal of interpretation. And so we're going to be dealing a little bit with that. But as we get into this, we want to look at the goal of biblical hermeneutics, and even more broadly, we're looking for the goal of interpretation, as hermeneutics are the principles which guide interpretation. It's the, it's the principles which are utilized for the interpretation of any given communication. So even more broadly than that, we're going to be looking at the goal of interpretation. What are we trying to achieve as we approach a text or a communication, and we're trying to understand what's being said? Uh, it seems logical, it just to, to me, based on just the basic definition of what interpretation is, that the goal is to ascertain meaning of a communication. Right? So you have, you have this uh, communication sitting before you, and interpretation is the process of discovering the meaning uh, that, is, that is sent by that communication. So uh, kind of a reminder of how communication works and what it is. So you have the communicator and then you have the audience. So you have these two, two uh, people involved in the process of communication. The person providing the communication, their goal is to take knowledge uh, or data, and they're going to encrypt it, if you will, in language. Language is the vehicle used to send that communication in most scenarios, right? You also have body language and facial expression and things of that nature, um, which oftentimes is utilized as involuntary communication, right? You get surprised and your face shows surprise or, or you're angry and your face flushes or whatever the case may be. But typically, in communication, especially as we're approaching the Bible, uh, this is true, the communicator has taken data and they've encrypted it in language. And that language is then the vehicle used to transport that data or that knowledge to the recipient, right? So in the biblical case, we have God being the ultimate author of all of Scripture, uh, as we see in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed or from the mouth of God. So he is communicated in the Scriptures. Uh, 2 Peter tells us how he's done that. 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so uh, God used human authors as the mouthpiece, if you will, uh, for his communication, um, and we can get into that in a later a later podcast. The kind of the dual authorship of the scriptures, but he's used human authors to write down what he has spoken and what has come from his mouth. And so now we have the Bible, and that has been sent to a primary audience. So, right, the uh, for instance, the letter to the Romans was written by Paul. It is God's words through Paul to the church in Rome. And then we, uh, you know, 2,000 years later, we're the secondary audience. And so we also get to receive that communication and read it. And so it gets a little bit more uh, difficult because there is a primary and a secondary audience uh, of what that interpretation looks like. But nonetheless, we have a communicator 
and then we have a recipient of that communication. The communicator has encrypted the data in language, has sent that language as a vehicle to the recipient, the recipient receives that data, and now the recipient has to interpret or decrypt that data. They have to, uh, they have to take, it, take the language and uh, see the construction of the language and identify or discover what the data is that has been encrypted by the, by the uh, author. And so by the basic form of communication, what communication is, it would seem uh, that there are a few things that get answered very easily, in my opinion, right off the bat. For instance, who gets to determine the meaning, right? Who determines the meaning that we're trying to ascertain in the process of interpretation? Well, that's a good question, and there's a lot of answers to that. Uh, I would hold, I'll tell you right off the bat, I would hold to what's considered authorial intent. And that's the idea that the determiner of the meaning or the one who establishes the meaning in the communication is, in fact, the author. Uh, the, the, other, the flip side of that would be considered reader response. And that's the idea that in some form or fashion, there's a lot of different ways that it looks as people who hold to reader response would present the, the data or their position. Uh, but in, in some case, in some form, the reader determines the meaning of the text, or at least has part in determining the meaning of the text. In authorial intent, the reader has no part in determining the meaning of the text. The author of the text does, or the author of the communication establishes what is meant. And so by establishing this goal and purpose for interpretation, there's really quite a few introductory issues that come to light, which will be explored in later episodes. But today, I do want to spend a little bit of time uh, on the two views of the establishment of meaning, right? Again, the goal of interpretation is to ascertain meaning of a communication. But then the, the next question kind of naturally arises, well, who determines the meaning, which we've dealt with a little bit. But I want to dive into this a little bit more. The two views, again, reader response and authorial intent. And outside of theological circles, it's often referred to as reader response and new criticism. Okay, so there's kind of these two views, uh, typically within... Uh, theological circles, you go to a seminary, you're going you're gonna to hear authorial intent, reader response, and it's very similar as reader response and new criticism. And this gets into literary criticism uh, outside of the scriptures. This is, this is uh, a common um, you know, in, in various circles. But kind of some examples of this, uh, well, let's get into the definition first. Lewis Tyson wrote Critical Theory Today, a User-Friendly Guide. And establishes the reader response has two main beliefs. And these are kind of the two main beliefs of the reader response. Again, reader response meaning this uh, idea that the reader is the one at some level determining meaning. Number one, that the role of the reader cannot be omitted from our understanding of literature. And number two, that readers do not passively consume the meaning presented to them by an objective literary text. Rather, they actively make the meaning they find in literature. You see very very clearly that in these two uh, main beliefs, if you will, the role of the reader cannot be omitted from our understanding of literature. Okay, so if you dig a little bit more into what that means, it's really not that big of a deal, but number two is huge. Readers do not passively consume the meaning presented to them by an objective literary text. So you, there's a sense in which you lose objectivity, and we'll see that as we break down the various categories of the reader response. Rather, they actively make the meaning they find in literature. Okay, so now the, the reader is making meaning in the text. They are determining the meaning within the text. 
Tyson goes on and breaks the reader response view into five categories. Uh, first is the transactional reader response theory. Then you have the affective stylistics. Then you have the subjective reader response theory. Then you have the psychological reader response theory. And lastly, the social reader response theory. And these theories, you can look into the various um, uh, resources. You can look at Tyson's work, Critical Theory Today, User-Friendly Guide, and it'll she'll, uh, explain all of it. Uh, but these theories, they all share one thing, among many others, of course, and that is that the reader has a major role in determining the meaning of the text, whether it's an individualistic reader response or a community reader response. There's a little bit of a breakdown there, too. So, well, for instance, one of the reader response theories would suggest that uh, meaning of text can't be derived except within a community. So you have a community of like-minded interpretive methodology, they all share it, and that's where you derive your meaning. And so it's more of a communal uh, reader response theory, whereas some, uh, such as the subjective reader response theory, is very individualistic. Um, uh, there's actually also one called the aesthetic uh, reader response theory, which is the idea that uh, it's kind of beauty lays in the eyes of the beholder. And so as one sees the uh, kind of the beauty of the text, then that determines the meaning. And so it's kind of more of an emotional response to the text, and that emotional response is what determines or, or derives meaning in the text. So it's very, very subjective. It's not objective in any sense of the word. Most reader responses are that way. In fact, I would say all of them are. Now, if we go to, uh, I want to give a couple examples of this. Uh, in, in 2008, it was when it was really big, the emergent, uh, the emergent movement, the emerging movement. Um, and so uh, out of that, Phyllis Tickle, she wrote a book uh, called The Great Emergence. And uh, very, it, it deals with a, a bit of a cultural interpretive method. And so it's very community driven. The culture determines the meaning. And so meaning really changes over time as the culture changes over time of the same text. And so as, as we approach the scriptures, we need to interpret the scriptures through the lens of our culture. In fact, at one point she actually says that uh, sola scriptura is very much outdated and uh, authority should be held uh, not only by the scriptures, but also by the society and culture at large. And so you have uh, the scriptures, but those are then determined, the meaning of the scriptures are determined by the community at large. And so it's a very much a reader response because the community then determines the meaning. The reader is determining the meaning of the biblical text. Uh, we also have uh, a couple other examples of reader response. The uh, um, So that's really that's an example of the reader response within theological circles. There's a there's a lot more out there uh, regarding a a uh, uh, reader response approach to the scriptures, uh, but that's really a prime example. Uh, authorial intent is the view that states the author of the communication determines the meaning of the text, while the reader discovers the meaning of the text. So you want to think of like an archaeological dig, right? The artifacts are in the ground; they're there. Uh, 
the the role of the archaeologist is to then go dig and discover those artifacts, whatever the whatever they may be, right? And th- that's the same way we should approach the text in the authorial intent view. Is the the author has determined the meaning? It's been encrypted. It's been coded. It's been provided, and now it's the goal of the reader to then dig into the text and discover what's there. I'm not determining what's there. I'm discovering what's there because what the meaning has already been determined. Uh, the author did that. The author determined the meaning, and so now I get to discover what's being said or what meaning has been has been put inside the language. And so it's the goal of the reader to strive for discovering the meaning provided. To bring meaning to the text is to miss the intended meaning by the author, which, as you can imagine, has massive implications, right? Especially as we approach the Scriptures, God has spoken, God has communicated. The Scriptures actually tell us that wisdom comes from the mouth of God. We see that in Proverbs 9, uh, 6. Wisdom comes from the mouth of God. Paul tells us that, that God has spoken, the scriptures are God's speaking. Those are God's words. They're God-breathed. And so as I approach the text, to, to approach it as if I get to determine the meaning is to bypass wisdom. You know, I, I miss all of that. I miss what the creator of the universe has said. I mean, just a basic thinking of, of, uh, of what, is, what the implications of a reader response is in your everyday communication. Right? I, I, I communicate with my children or I communicate with my wife uh, every day, all day, right? And so as I communicate with them, if they get to determine what I mean, can you imagine if your children got to determine what you meant? Man, life would be chaos. They'd be eating candy all day and their rooms would be an absolute disaster, right? It's like uh, uh, my, my oldest daughter's name is Kana. Kana, would you go clean your room? And she gets to determine what I mean by that. What well, I mean, I might as well just not communicate, right? I mean, uh, and if you and if actually you take that to its logical conclusion and Canaan gets to determine the meaning, then I don't I can I can't effectively parent, which means I can't effectively teach my children. I can't effectively raise my ch- I mean the whole thing just falls apart. All it's just an unlivable uh, an unlivable conclusion. A reader response approach to any communication is just it's not it's not uh, it's not doable. It's not it's not reasonable. It's not possible. You know, I think of uh, Paul tells Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. Okay, well, what Paul's not telling Timothy to do is to determine the meaning of the truth. He's saying to rightly divide the word of truth, to to cut straight the word of truth, to uh, make sure you get it right, to approach the scriptures and and understand it rightly. I also think of the Bereans who search the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying in uh, in Acts 17 is correct. Right, Paul is. On his second missionary journey, he's working through Greece. He's went to Thessalonica. He went to Athens. He's in Berea. And, and he comes to Berea, and he's, he's given the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? He first goes to the synagogue, and he goes to the, um, kind of in his pattern, first synagogues, then the God-fearing Gentiles, and then everyone else. And he, and he goes to Berea, and he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's an apostle. right? He's, he's well-known at this point. He's going through, and he's performing miracles. People are trying to kill him, and and uh, put him in prison and all kinds of stuff. They don't like it for for various reasons. Um, uh, and so he gets to Berea and and he communicates this truth. And the Bereans test what he's saying by going to the scriptures. Uh, now to to do that, you're, you're taking what Paul has said and you're approaching the scriptures to test them against the scriptures. Now 
as they endeavor to test what he's saying against what the scriptures are saying, if the reader determines meaning, could the Bereans not have just made what Paul is saying line up with scriptures? Even if, even if Paul was contrary to what the scriptures said? Well, of course, people do it all the time. It's done all the time today. If I get to determine the meaning of the text, uh, I can make it say whatever I want it to say. And we can twist the scriptures. Uh, I mean, it's not a hard thing to do. And so, of course, they could. So what would be the point of testing it? Right? We have to determine what the author... So in that, in that endeavor, the Bereans would have had to have known what the scriptures said. And, and there's the author of those scriptures. God speaks, and it's written down, and he has... So they have the scriptures there. And then they're taking the communication that Paul is giving. They have to understand what Paul is saying so that they interpret his communication rightly. And then they have to compare. Right, So you have these two sets of interpretation, and you're comparing them. Do they mesh? Because they know that the Scriptures are true. So if what Paul is saying, the meaning that he's given to the communication, lines up with the Scriptures, then what he said is true. And so now they can take what Paul is saying, and they can, they can go with that and, and uh, agree and, and, and respond accordingly. Right, But they have to understand what the author is intending to communicate. If they can make it say whatever they want, if it's a reader response based on their context, based on their community, based on their experience, based on whatever whatever you want it to be, based on their theological system, based on uh, fill in the blank, if, if they can make that text mean what they want it to based on those things, then it doesn't matter, especially if it's the same, they've, the same method they've used on the scriptures, they apply that same method uh, of reader response to Paul's communication, then you make it say whatever you want, and they're going to line up. Right, so we have to we have to seek authorial intent. Uh, I I believe that's the only way to have effective communication. And so I would suggest the goal of biblical hermeneutics is to discover what God has communicated to man, discovering the knowledge and wisdom which He has set forth. It's not to determine; it's to discover. Another classic example of a form, I would suggest a form of reader response, is Augustine's work, The City of God, right? So Augustine lived in the 4th to 5th century A.D., uh, mid-4th century, he lived through to the, to, I, I believe it was, um, I, I believe it was 430 A.D. So he lives, uh, you know, 4th, 5th century A.D. If we, go, if we go back to 70 A.D., the nation of Israel ceases to exist, okay? So Rome conquers Israel, destroys the temple, absolutely decimates uh, the nation of Israel. And so then we fast forward to the 4th and 5th century AD, which is when St. Augustine uh, is is living. And by the way, I refuse to say Augustine. Uh, it's just not right. It's Augustine. So any anybody out there calling him Augustine, please, please don't. It's definitely Augustine uh, because I say so, not, not, not uh, for any real uh, academic reason. But anyways, Augustine's living 4th, 5th century AD. And so you think of the context he finds himself in. He's, he's looking out at the world. There's no nation of Israel. There hasn't been a nation of Israel for centuries. Uh, and then you look at the biblical text, and you see it talking about Israel, right? We see uh, Romans 9 through 11. Uh, another example, you look at Revelation 7. is dealing with the 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. You the, you know, it's listed out, 12,000 from each of these tribes. You've got the 144,000 right there in Revelation 7. It clearly says it's from the tribes of Israel. It lists out what tribes and how many from each tribe. And you look at that and you go, that's great. But there's no Israel. Israel doesn't exist. 
And so what, what happens is you get the first complete work, systematic eschatological work, uh, leading to amillennialism. Now, there are uh, certainly, in fairness, there are aspects of amillennialism that existed well before Augustine, but he produces this the city of God, kind of a uh, cornerstone work on the systematic view of amillennialism, is St. Augustine's work, The City of God. But as you look at it, and you look out at the landscape that he was seeing, I mean, you would think the two main options you have there is, one, uh, God is wrong because Israel doesn't exist, and so clearly there can't be 144,000 from those tribes, or you can't have uh, Romans 11 where Israel's being saved, and there can't really be a nation of Israel found in the New Testament and, and the prophetic aspects of the New Testament because Israel doesn't exist. They cease to exist, and it's been hundreds of years. And so God would be wrong. Well, that can't be because it's God. He's the creator of all things. He's all-knowing. Uh, and so he can't be wrong. And so it must mean that we're not supposed to understand the Scriptures in that way. Instead, we understand them in an allegorical fashion. And so now the tribes, uh, the, the nation of Israel, where it comes up in prophetic literature, has to mean something else. And what they land on is it lands, it, it's all of God's elect. For instance, in Revelation 7, uh, many theologians who would hold to an amillennial position would suggest that that is dealing with all of God's elect. And they, they go different various routes to get to that conclusion. But it's certainly not uh, from the tribes of ethnic Israel. That can't be the case. It's got to be uh all of God's elect, all of God's redeemed. You can look at uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, writes an article, the uh, theological primer on the 144,000 for the Gospel Coalition, and uh, he lays that out really nicely for you. Um, and so, anyway, so you've got this this allegor allegorization of the text, which is is really unnecessary uh, because of the landscape which you find yourself. And so, I would suggest that's a form of reader response. Because what you're doing is you have the text. Uh, instead of uh, uh, taking the text normatively, you're looking at your experience and what you're seeing. And so now you are adjusting your interpretive method of the text. And now you're, you're determining the meaning at some level. Now, I, I don't want to question motives or anything like that. I just put my... So with Augustine, I just put myself in his position and I go, it would be easy to do that. I don't know if that's why he did it. I don't know if he did it because he didn't see a nation, national Israel. But I, I can see where that would be an incentive to uh, allegorize the text. Well, because God can't be wrong. right? So now you get this reader response. It's a form of reader response. But we can't do that. You know, so the, from Augustine to 1948, we get this, uh, you know, a, a drive towards amillennialism and postmillennialism and this push. And then in 1948, uh, Israel becomes a nation again. And now there's this this rise of premillennialism, this, uh, you know, the idea that the nation, God does have a plan for the nation of Israel in the future. Uh, and now it's uh, kind of the landscape now is postmillennialism and amillennialism is really taking a foothold again. And so you just kind of see the pendulum swing between uh, theological conclusions based on interpretive methodology uh, but nonetheless, even even the uh, I'm I'm a premillennialist, but even the push back to premillennialism in 1948, it's unfortunate that the reason that it was a push back to premillennialism is because of what we experienced, right? Whoa, there's a nation of Israel again. Well, then 
we must understand the text in this way. No, you should understand the text in this way because you're trying to let the Bible speak for itself in a normative way, not because Israel becomes a nation again. That's another form of reader response, right? So you're letting your experience dictate your interpretive methodology. And we can't do that because if we do that, then the text means something different for everybody because everyone has a different experience and that just doesn't lead to truth. There is no objective truth in that. It's all subjective based on the person and their experience. We can't do that. We have to let the, the, the author determine the meaning and let the reader discover the meaning. And so I would say, let us venture to discover the meaning of the text so we can identify what God has communicated, being equipped for every good work, achieving the goal, I would suggest, of biblical hermeneutics and interpretation. Well, that's it for this episode. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Until next time.